this is a person that, of all the golfers that you've probably watched over the years, my guess is that even if you haven't met him, you feel a certain kinship. You feel a certain friendship. A, a feeling that you know him. You really know him. He has entertained us in every way for so many years. Peter Jacobson is known as a world-class voice in the game of golf because of all those years that he has put in. You probably watched him on Golf Channel and NBC. But he has 23 wins as a professional, seven of those on the PGA Tour. And to his credit, which shows how long he was able to compete at the highest level, his last was at the age of 49 in 2003. That was at what was then called the Greater Hartford Open, now known as the Travelers Championship. And that year it also led him to winning the Comeback Player of the Year. After he joined the PGA Tour Champions, he won twice on that tour, and both were major championships. The U.S. Senior Open in 2004 and the Senior Players in 2005. He was also a member of the 1985 and the 1995 United States Ryder Cup teams. The number is, maybe it's going to surprise him even, it's impressive nonetheless, 661 starts on the PGA Tour. Another 166 starts on PGA Tour champions. That's a total, ready for this, 827 tour events, which between those two tours, nine wins, 17 runner-up finishes, 12 third-place finishes, including a third at the 1983 and 1986 PGA Championships. Peter won the Francis We Met Award in 2006, the Old Tom Morris Award in 2012, and the Payne Stewart Award in 2013. One more thing that you may not know about Peter. He is self-taught with the guitar. I know you're, you're familiar with him and his, and his, his playing of the instrument and, and singing. He was one of the founding members. In fact, he was lead singer of Jake Trout and the Flounders, a band he formed in the mid-80s. Mark Lye, Payne Stewart amongst the, the group there. They actually recorded two albums together. You can find their music on Amazon as well. Absolute delight to welcome Peter Jacobson to the program. How are you, Jake? Hey, Matt. Good. How are you tonight? I'm okay, thank you. Where, where are you, and how are you uh, riding out the, all of this? Well, we are actually in Westchester, New York, of all places. Whoa! The, yeah, the belly of the beast. Our daughter and son-in-law are both doctors, and they are working, and we have uh, they have two of our four grandkids here, a four-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl, and their schools are closed, so... My wife and I, we flew up here about two and a half weeks ago to basically run Nana and Papa daycare. <laughs> so if you'd like to come over and spend a day with us, you can certainly do that. We can. I hear you're good at charades and Monopoly Junior and, and uh, go fish. Yeah, I was hoping you could kind of school me. How's that going? Well, it's going. It's going. I realize now that uh, 66-year-old people shouldn't have kids. <laughs> because it's exhausting. My gosh. Uh, we, we had them this morning at 9. Took them back around 3, 3.30, and they come back again at 8.30 tomorrow. So Jan and I, we, we basically veg in the evenings, go to bed early, and we get up ready to go. We yeah, Today we went to a park at, by Tensico Dam. Obviously, social distancing is important. Yeah. And we flew a kite. And it was pretty windy today in New York. We flew a kite. We rode bikes. We did scooters. We played soccer. Uh, all the things you do with little kids. And Aww. we really do cherish the time that we have with our with our six- and four-year-old. It's, it's such valuable time. And uh, I think we're all going to be, uh, Jane and I, I know I speak for us, I know we'll be better for it. And hopefully the kids will be as well. Yeah, and uh, speaking of kids, you're... you're kids working in the front lines in the medical field as well. God bless them for that. That's that I'm sure that's got to be uh, more one, a source of pride for you in terms of what they're doing, but also a source of concern. Yeah, we, we make sure that we, uh, they, they come by in the mornings, they drop the kids off. Uh, they walk into the house and we take them back and we keep our distance. And 
we do everything that we're supposed to do and, you know, pray to God that we get this, we get this virus, or as, as the kids like to call it, the Corona pirates. We, we <laughs> want to get this thing to flatten out, to level off, and go away. That's, that's the most important thing with this few, few as fatal, few as death, few, wow, I can't even say it, few as fatalities as possible. Yeah, yeah, indeed, absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to delving into Peter Jacobson, all things, and and talking to you about your career and your philosophy and your thoughts here on the Fairways of Life show today. You know, you you had said, I forget when and where I heard you say it, but you were talking about the great golfers, the greats of the greats, and how in the crucible that is pressure in any tournament, in fairness, but in particular at major championships, how they kind of create their own world swirling around them instead of one that is compelled upon them. And I wonder if I could ask you about that philosophically. What did you mean by that, and and how does that manifest itself? Well, the great players in the game, Matt, seem to create their own atmosphere. And as a player myself, I felt it. I remember the first time I played with Jack Nicklaus, it happened to be at his tournament, tournament, the Memorial, in Columbus, Ohio. It was a third-round event. Uh, it was a third-round pairing. I was paired with Jack and Don Bees, uh, the great Don Bees of Seattle. And uh, this is way back. I think this is early 80s. And I was so nervous to meet Jack and to play with him. And I know it was his event at Mirfield Village, but when he walked onto the tee, you could just feel an energy around him that makes him the special, maybe the greatest player we've ever seen. It just made him that special. And I, that was really the first time I ever noticed it. And I started really looking out for that. And I noticed that same aura around people like Palmer and player and Trevino and the little that I was around Ben Hogan, it was around Ben and around, around Byron, and certainly now we see it around Tiger Woods. And some of these players in the game today are just, uh, they're just, they're just magnetic. And they've got charisma like, like Arnold and, and Jack and Gary Player. And I know it seems crazy to think that Jack, you wouldn't normally think, would have charisma, but he did. He was so good with people. He was intense, very much like Tiger is. Jack, when Jack was competing, boy, he was—he had his eyes on the prize. But when you played with him, when you had a chance to meet with him and talk with him, he was just the warmest and the kindest person. Like Arnold, like Gary, like Lee, like Byron Nelson, like these great gentlemen of the game. And and that's really to me, there was that thing. I guess they call it it. Whatever it is, those guys certainly had it and have it. When you had that realization in the early 80s then, uh, observing Jack Nicklaus, that that there was this sense of self, uh, of, uh, I don't know whether you call it conviction, you called it energy, whatever it is, were you able to channel the same for yourself? Did you, did you ever tr- have that mentality of going, I'm going to, all of this, all this noise that's around me doesn't mean anything, I'm going to create my own world at this time and place? The guy that had the most impact on me in that regard was Trevino. He and I played together in the final round of the old BC Open up in Endicott, which is now the Dick Sporting Goods on the Champions Tour. And we were in contention, and again, I was terrified. First time playing with Lee Trevino. And we went out, he shot like 39, the front nine. I think I shot 32 or 33, and I was right in the mix. And we're going down the 10th hole, and... uh, Lee came over, put his arm around me. He said, "Hey, man, you're you're a pretty good young player. You got a chance to win this tournament." And I immediately threw it back on him. I said, "Well, what about you? You're you're doing okay." He goes, "No, no, I'm out of it. I shot 39. I got no chance. But look, let's get you in." He goes, "Relax and let's have some fun." And I felt like he was more on my side than I was, uh, or or my old caddy Fluff. Trevino was became my cheerleader, and that meant so much to me. And I think I finished the tournament in third place. And Trevino said to me after the round, he said, look, you can't change who you are when you go play the tour. 
you're you're pretty you're pretty relaxed. You like to joke around. You like to talk to people. Make sure you you're that way on the golf course. I used to try to really really get intense and sack up and really try to close in and focus and be like Ben Hogan, who was who was one of my heroes. But I realized I couldn't do that. Whenever I tried to do that, I I just I would get outside of my comfort zone. So since that round happened with Trevino, I think that was I think that was seventy eight or seventy nine. I realized, okay, I can't change. I I like to talk to people, and and it helped me to win tournaments. Whenever I whenever I felt myself getting nervous, or as Johnny Miller would say, choking. Whenever you start to question question where you are and what you're doing, I would immediately break off and go talk to somebody in, on the gallery, in the gallery, on the ropes. I'd walk up to somebody, I'd look at their shirt, I'd see a logo that I might rec- recognize, and mm-hmm. I'd, just start, I'd just start talking to them. And that would relax me, and it made me realize that, that we're, we're in a public setting. They may be watching me play my, try to play great golf, but, but I knew what I was doing, and it, and it relaxed me. So that's when I really started gravitating toward guys like Trevino and Chi-Chi and, and Fuzzy and, and players and Jim Thorpe, guys that used to laugh and have a really good time on the course. Has Peter Jacobson always been comfortable in his own skin on or off the golf course? Did, did that take some time? No, I think I've always I've – always been pretty comfortable i know a lot of players have said to me if, if i was a little bit tougher and meaner i probably would have possibly won more tournaments but i, I disagree i think uh, i won just the right number for me i wish i w- we, we all wish we would have won more i never won a major on the champ on the on the regular tour i did win a couple on the champions tour but but no i i think you really got to come to a a comfortable feeling with who you are on and off the course, there's no way that I could, I could get out of my car. I remember Faldo early on. Faldo was one of the greatest guys. He was so much fun, and uh, we used to request to play together at Pebble Beach. I'd play with Jack Lemon, and he would play with Eastwood, and we had so much fun, and we'd laugh and joke. But when Nick got into the middle of of, of the competition, he could change. He could com- compartmentalize his fun attitude and he could focus and be as intense as Ben Hogan or Tiger or Jack. But, and I think people got the wrong, wrong feeling of Nick that he was, he was not any fun. The opposite is true. Faldo is so much fun. And now I think we're seeing that side come out when he does TV because the pressure to compete is no longer there. But I think you're seeing that Nick really loves golf. And he loves people, and he loves the players he's he's covering, and he wants everybody to know how much fun he's having up in the booth. Classic. Peter Jacobson is our guest. Folks, uh, Peter, did you, in fact, teach yourself how to play guitar? How did that happen? Where did you get it from? When did you pick it up? How did that go down? I was uh, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I wanted a guitar. I think I was around 11 or 12, and... My mom and dad bought me uh, an old Washburn guitar, which I still have. I don't even know what it huh. was. What, what they paid, probably 20 bucks or 30 bucks, but I still have that guitar. And I took some classical guitar lessons in downtown Portland, and I took maybe three or four lessons. Well, I'm talking uh, Segovia type of classical, and I hated it. I just, I, it didn't move me. And really got into music when I heard my, my first album I ever bought. And what turned me on to, the, to, to music was the album Meet the Beatles by the Beatles. That was my first introduction. Wow. And I had my guitar and I, I went out and bought a chord book. And I started working on the chord A and then A minor and then A seventh. And I'd move up all the way until I, until I mastered all the the chords, and then learning how to play chords and then learning how to play them within the framework of a song is two different things. You can, I can tell a beginner to go play an A and then a G and then a D, and they can do it. But now if I said, okay, here comes, here comes a Hootie and the Blowfish song, which Hootie and the Blowfish has, have basic root chords, a lot of Gs, a lot of Ds, a lot of Cs. That's why they're, they're easy to play and they're fun to play, all those, 
all those great Hootie songs. But when you ask someone to play along with it, if they're a beginner, it, it takes time. And, and that's what I did. I just taught myself how to play along. And, and even to this day, thank, thanks to YouTube, the magic of YouTube, I can, hmm. I can basically play with, with anybody on any song. And uh, that's, that's how I do it. What was the song off that first Beatles album that you got then that you wore the thing out playing? Oh, the, the entire album. Probably, I saw her standing there. That was probably <laughs> one of the one of the great songs. But I remember those guys. I thought, oh my gosh, look at these guys' haircuts. These guys are really breaking the mold with that mop top. And now I look back at those guys and I think, huh, it looks like got they look like guys next door compared to some of the hairstyles we see today. Yeah, you, you think too that back to or, or to the reality of the fact that Paul McCartney is still touring. I just saw him a little while, not long ago, in, in Tampa, less than a year ago. And boy, does that speak to what you were talking about—the gratitude of, of, in your case, being a touring professional and being around golf your whole life. Uh, no matter where it is, if you if you find your love, it's almost like you never grow old. Well, Elton John in my life, Elton John was one of not one of my favorites, if not my favorite. And we just saw him last fall wow. in Fort Lauderdale. And and Elton John, what I love about people like Elton John or Paul McCartney, or if you put it in golf context, Arnold Palmer, these guys are are well beyond their 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 sweet spot in their careers. When yeah. you think of Elton or Paul McCartney, they're, they're, the, the great years have passed them, but they still love music, and they still love to share their music with their fans. Now, the fan base that obviously McCartney shows or Elton shows maybe is a little bit older, although we tend to see some of these audiences skew a little bit younger. But even yeah. when Arnold would go out and play, and, and I had the great honor of partnering Arnold uh, in a bunch of these bunch of these best ball events, CBS Charity Classic, Fred Bar Challenge, the Shark Shootout, and Arnold knew that he was way past his prime of playing golf, but he he loved being amongst the people as much as they loved seeing <laughs> him play. And whether he'd make a bogey or a double, it didn't matter. Nobody cared. He did. Arnold cared, but nobody else mattered. And when we watched Elton play for three straight hours, he sat on the bench, and he would turn and, and play to the crowd. We also just saw Phil Collins in Vegas. And Phil Collins, who just had hip surgery, he came out with a cane, sat in a chair, and then just killed it. Nobody cared. Nobody cared that he was in a chair. He wasn't jumping around like you'd think back in the days. But Phil Collins on concert, in concert in Vegas for almost three hours, just, just incredible. Gosh, it is incredible. Uh, Peter, when you were talking about the Beatles and the hairstyle and all the rest, it kind of made me wonder about your dad. And mostly from the standpoint of a lot of times when that was happening back in the day, one's parents didn't like the way that the Beatles presented themselves or a lot of the of the culture at that time. What was your relationship like with your father? Well, my dad was a pretty serious guy. He was uh, He was in the war. He was a Navy flyer. My dad was a torpedo wow. bomber off the uh, off the aircraft carrier Intrepid, which is now moored here in the uh, uh, in the New York Harbor. In fact, my father won the Navy Cross. Uh, oh. He was uh, in one of the final battles when they uh, when they sunk the Japanese battleship. Uh, I think it was called the Yamamoto. So he was a he was a brave dude. You think about you think about the time we're going through now. Uh, back in back during World War II. A lot of the kids were asked to go to war. You didn't know if they were coming home. All we're asked to do here with this coronavirus is just sit and sit inside and and learn Stay how to home. play guitar and watch Netflix. So it's a it's it's a it's a different it's a different uh, uh, different situation. But my dad was pretty tough. He there was not a lot of uh, not not a lot of play time except on the golf course. He taught us all how to play. And in fact, when my wife, when my wife was my girlfriend, um, and she would come, she would come visit. Uh, my mom and dad would scare her because they were they were pretty serious folks. But uh, 
yeah, we, we grew up in Portland and every, we just had a great, great family. I had uh, two, two brothers and a sister and we all played golf. And, uh, we, we, for me, golf is family. So how was it, uh, respectfully, how was it that Peter Jacobson became Peter Jacobson in that family? If he had two so serious parents, I, I don't know anyone that would describe you that way. It, you're, you, you strike me as a person that goes with the flow. Well, it's pretty funny you say that because we have four grandkids now. We have three kids and we have four grandkids, three boys and a girl, and all four of them are so distinctly different <laughs> they all have a, a little bit of a combination of of our different of our kids and our other grandkids mixed together. So uh, who knows? Who knows where these personalities develop or or how when you throw all that into the mix, how that comes about? It's uh, it's still a mystery to me. How was how was it as you were emerging on your own as a touring professional? You were contending. You were winning. How was that relationship with your dad? Did you were you driven to impress him to to make him proud of you, or how did he react as you went step by step? I was always driven to impress my dad because uh, when I was in college at the University of Oregon, and I was. I was playing well. I won, I won a bunch of college tournaments, and I won some amateur tournaments. I didn't have the money. We didn't have the money for me to play national tournaments. I only, I only had the chance to go play the U.S. Amateur and the Western Amateur. Those are the only two tournaments that I would play outside of the state of Oregon. And my dad, my dad used to say whenever I, I remember one year I finished uh, low amateur, finished second place at the. Pacific Northwest Open, and I came in, and I was on Jack, and he looked at me, and he said, hey, you know, if you can't win these tournaments, you might as well just go back to school and work on your work on your, your school, on your school work, and make sure you can get a good job, because golf's not going to contain you or sustain you for the rest of your life, and I don't think he was trying to be mean. I think he was serious, but, uh, and he was supportive, but I think I always, I mean, don't we all, don't we all want to try to impress our moms and dads? Sure. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Absolutely. Peter Jacobson is our guest. When, when you were playing at the height of your prowess and you're surrounded by, call it stress, call it emotion, whatever you want to talk about, what is it like when you step outside of yourself? I know you, you, you and I have talked about this before where, where you have this sense of watching yourself perform like a member of the gallery or the member of the audience if you're if you're an artist like Elton John or what have you I, I what does that mean Peter and how does one try to do that well when I was younger I met a I met a guy at uh, during when I was at school at the University of Oregon he was a club pro there in the state of Oregon his name was Chuck Hogan and he helped me a tremendous amount with my mental approach to the game and he always used to tell me to disassociate with myself in pressure situations for example if i had a five foot putt to win the tournament he would always say all right take yourself out of yourself and put you over in the gallery and make that per you're now watching yourself and then he would ask me to go through the motion of lining the putt up get up and knock the putt in and win and then he'd say, okay, now you go back and put yourself in your body, and all you do is repeat that action. And that always, that always I know it sounds silly, but it always calmed me because whenever I had a, it could have been a four-foot putt on the last hole to, to break par in the first round, or it could have been a eagle putt on number five to go five under after five. It didn't matter. I always used that little mental trick to trick myself to fool myself into knowing that I could make that putt or I could handle that situation. And uh, so I owe, I owe a lot to Chuck Hogan and he worked with a lot of players, worked with Johnny Miller. He worked with uh, Raymond Floyd, D.A. Weibring, Mike Reed. And he was really one of the smartest guys when it came to the mental game that I've ever, that I've seen in the game to this day. Fascinating. I wanted to ask you too, uh, Peter, you, for 19 years, you and Fluff were a team. Uh, then 
if I remember correctly, you were injured and he it went and caddied for Tiger. Is is my recollection correct? Yeah, that is correct. Tiger was playing in the U.S. Amateur at uh, Pumpkin Ridge in Portland, and I was out watching him play. Tiger and I played a little bit in tournaments, so we got to know each other, and Tiger was looking for a caddy for three or four events in the fall. He was going to turn pro, and uh, he was working with Butch Harmon at the time, and and uh, Fluff and the Harmon family and I, we've been close friends forever. So that got set up, and, and Fluff always reminded Butch and Tiger, look, I caddy for Peter. I'm his caddy. This is just an interim thing. Until Tiger got off to a pretty hot start, and I think he won two of the first four, two of the first four events he played with Fluff, and uh, that kind of sealed the deal. Tiger, Tiger <laughs> offered him the job, and and Mike called me. Fluff called me and said, Peter, I'm not, I'm not taking this job unless um, you tell me to. And my wife Jan was listening. She grabbed the phone and she said, Fluff, you're fired. You need <laughs> to find a new job. Go find a new job. Basically, telling Fluff, you got to go work for Tiger because this is a chance to work for the greatest, possibly the player's greatest player in the game. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool piece of Peter Jacobson uh, trivia that uh, that a lot of people probably didn't know the impact that you had in the early career of of Tiger. But what kind of impact did it have on you after losing a caddy that you had for so many years? Was that a tough transition well, following? Yeah. It, it, it was pretty hard because all of a sudden I went from literally my best friend, who I still consider Fluff my best friend in the game of golf to this day. We we talk probably twice a week, whether or not mm. he's working, whether I'm playing or doing TV, or whether he's at home or on the road with uh, with Furyk. But it was really difficult because now I was looking for a caddy, and I jumped around with a couple of guys, but. It was uh, it was really fun for me to see Fluff and Tiger working so well together, and they were together. And then when Fluff won uh, with Tiger when they won the Masters in '97, um, uh, you couldn't have found two prouder people than my wife and I. We we just because I always joke and say that I consider Fluff to be my oldest child because he used to live with <laughs> us, and my kids call him Uncle Mike. So it's um, it was kind of a family affair and. Uh, so I was, uh, it, but it, it was hard. Whenever there's a change like that, it was um, it was pretty something. I have to tell you this cute story. When uh, they first worked together at Milwaukee, Fluff would call me after a Tuesday or Wednesday practice round, and he would say to me, Peter, this kid Tiger Woods hit shots like I've never seen. This kid is unbelievable. And then Tiger would call like 20 minutes later and say, Peter, you won't believe this. I registered and they gave me a free car to drive. Wow! And I was I was um, I, I went through the buffet and I was eating free food. <laughs> I said, "Well, Tiger, yeah, welcome to the tour. That's that's what they get. They you get a courtesy car for the week and and they really take care of you. So it was it's pretty cool to think back when Tiger was was just coming out. Like every player comes out on tour, kind of bright eyed and really don't know what to expect and. And uh, I would say that I know Tiger's had his problems, but, man, he, he handles himself with a ton of class at all times. Would you? What advice would you give that Peter Jacobson if you could go back and talk to yourself as a bright-eyed young kid coming out on tour? I would tell myself to work harder on my short game because after my 40-plus years in the game, Ball strike, everybody on tour can hit the ball. There are great ball strikers up and down the driving range. They're all great ball strikers. But the guys that can close the door and get the win and win major championships are guys that are magicians with the wedges and great putters. And all you have to do is mention two names, well, really three names, uh, uh, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and Seve Valleceros. Those are, those are three of the greatest short game players in the history of the game. They can get it up and down from everywhere. Now, those three are also three of the, of the uh, I would not put them in the top ten of ball strikers, but I would put them in the top, uh, in the top five 
of guys that can that can close the deal, shut the door, win the tournament, put put everybody in their rearview mirror. And I would say, and I, we can argue this point, but I would say it's because of their 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 wizardry around the greens, the recovery shots, and the great putts. And I always have said, golf is a game is more a game of recovery than it is precision. Because I can show you guys that hit it the ball in the middle of the fairway, hit it on the green, and two putt and make pars. You do that for thirty six holes, you miss a cut. But you give me guys that are that are magic, guys that can that can create shots and they can make eagles and birdies. Yeah, they're going to make doubles, but they're going to offset that with a lot of with a lot of under par, a lot of reds, a lot of circles and double circles on their scorecard. You know, uh, Peter, as you've been talking to us, I've been writing down names. As you mention a name, I write it down. And I thought, as as I've put together, and I added Sam Snead to the list too, but I thought it would be fun if you are willing. I'd like to shoot a name at you, and you tell me whatever you want, a story, a reaction, whatever whatever you feel like about that particular name that, that you have come across in, in your incredible career. And how about we start with Sam Snead? Sam Snead was always one to want to play a game. I played probably four or five rounds of golf with Sam Never in a tournament, but always in a practice round or in an exhibition. And he always wanted something on the line. He always <laughs> wanted to play for something. Could have been a buck. Could have been five bucks. It could have been a shot from here to there. But he had that gleam in his eye like he was messing with you. And he wanted to see if you had a choke point. And uh, that's what I loved about Sam. Ben Hogan. Ben Hogan was, I won the Colonial years ago and had the honor of going to the past champions banquet on Wednesday and had the chance to hang around with Mr. Hogan with the other past champions. And whenever you would meet, say hello to Mr. Hogan, if he remembered your name, you would melt all over the floor. And I remember in both occasions where I went up to say hi to Mr. Hogan and he would look at me and he wouldn't remember my name but in, but other times i'd go up and say hi mr hogan he'd say well hello peter how are you and wow. you would just you would just you would melt you're the wicked witch of the west and in fact um the last year of mr hogan's life i asked him to sign my visor he was on the first tee and i asked him to sign my visor and i wore that visor all week he passed away and i still have that visor oh that's very cool very cool. I got to chill with those stories. How about Byron Nelson? Probably the greatest gentleman in the game. Early on at the Byron Nelson Classic, when my buddy D.A. Weibring and I were doing clinics, we started doing these junior clinics around the around the tour, simply to be able to get a either a, a tournament spot or a courtesy car. We were mm-hmm. kind of doing it for our to to further our our our, our careers, and D.A. started doing the Byron Nelson Classic. And Mr. Nelson would sit and watch us do it. And D.A. always had guests like, he'd bring Tom Watson or Justin Leonard or Harrison Fraser. And I remember one time he asked Mr. Nelson to get up and hit some shots. And Iron Nelson popped up off his chair. He put that little seat sit, stick down and started warming up with a seven iron. And he was hitting these pure little seven irons. And oh. D.A. asked him, he said, hey, Mr. Nelson, why don't you call a shot here? And, and Byron hit one. And it was a little fade, and he said, D.A., that's a little fade. And let me tell you, at my age, I get to call my shot after I hit it. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, how about Gary Player? Again, one of the fine gentlemen, always has a positive outlook and always has a kind word for everybody. Now, now I know people always talk about Gary maybe can be uh, – a little bit critical of, of guys that aren't in great shape. I know he's not happy if he happens to see a guy with a little bit of a a little bit of a paunch. I know he said that to me a few times. He'd say, Pete, I've got to tell you you've got to lay off the sweets, get rid of that belly. But he always he always had uh, your best interest at heart. And again, another he and his wife Vivian were so were so kind and so helpful to my wife Jan and I. When we first started on tour, always a helpful, supportive word. Lee Trevino. 
Well, that story I told you about Lee meant the most to me because he was incredibly supportive, and he really made me feel like I belonged, and he helped me to stay me on the golf course. I like to, you and I have been together in a lot of situations where, you know, I, you can't get a word in edgewise because I'm always hogging the stage. And, but on the <laughs> golf course, I always, I always made sure that I was probably the most talkative one in the group trying to steal the stage from Lee Trevino. Brilliant. Tom Watson. Tom Watson, when I first, when I made my first international team, the U.S. versus Japan team match, qualified, qualified off money list, uh, they paired the, they paired the veteran guys. Trevino was on that team. Litsky was on that team. Crenshaw oh. was there. And uh, Tom Watson was looking at these players and he said, give me Peter. I want Peter. So we played, I think, four matches together. He was my partner. And I don't even remember how we did if we won or if we lost those matches, but I'll never forget how, how again, supportive and kind Tom Watson was to me in helping me. And, and that's that really, really set me in a direction when players came on tour that I didn't know. And, again, I, I'm certainly no Tom Watson or Lee Trevino, but when a young player comes out on tour and they're scared, because I was scared, and you don't know if you're going to lose your card or, or win a major. I always made sure I went out of my way to, to to welcome that player and introduce myself because guys like Player and, and Trevino and Palmer did that for me. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Seve Ballesteros. Well, Seve was a very close friend of mine. Seve and I would always play practice rounds at the majors. And we had a game where we would we would have a call a shot game, where we wouldn't get up on a tee and hit the traditional driver. Seve, we would rotate. And a lot of times we played with Greg Norman. We would get up on the tee and Seve, we would rotate and we would just call a shot. And it might be a 440 yard par four, but Seve would get up and say, "All right, four iron over the tree on the right, and the ball's got to finish in the left rough." So we'd, we'd get up and we'd hit a four iron and try to hook it across the entire fairway. In fact, I remember one time, Sebby and I were playing a practice round at Tucson at Cherry Hills, <laughs> and his brother, I believe it was Vicente, was caddying for him, and Fluff was caddying for me. And we were doing that game, and we got to the eight hole, which is a par three, and he said, "Okay, okay, we will play. We will play caddies too. We will play the caddies. My brother against Flop." So he said, "Okay, we'll do that, but we have to play off our knees." So we played the eighth hole. Seve and I had to hit off our knees, and Fluff and Vicente got to play regular, and Fluff and I beat them. We had oh. the best ball of a par, and they had a best ball of a bogey. So, but Seve was always great fun. Just. Just an incredible guy. This is awesome stuff. How about Nick Faldo? Well, again, Faldo was one of my really good friends. We we always requested to play together at the AT and T because we just we just really appreciated what that tournament meant to the PGA Tour. What other tournament can you spend four, five, six hours inside the ropes with a corporate CEO or an executive vice president? of a company that supports the PGA tour. Like we have yeah. so many great title sponsors and Nick understood that. And, um, we always would get paired with celebrities early on in my career. I didn't, but then I met Jack Lemon and we ended up playing together. But when I used to drive down from Portland to watch the AT&T or back then it was the Crosby, mm -hmm. I always saw the best players playing with the most famous celebrities and, so I always felt it was incumbent that a that a celebrity have a great time. Now, I'm certainly not one of the top players, but I always wanted to make sure that we got the most out of guys like Jack Lemon and Clint Eastwood to be able to to be able to entertain the people that came out to, to Cypress or Pebble or Spyglass. And uh, Faldo felt that way too. So we we had we had so much fun back in those days. Awesome. I, 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 I'm going to take a divergence from these golfers' names just for a second because you mentioned Clint Eastwood. I know Not a lot of people know this, but I know how much he loves music. How much did you get a chance to play with Clint? Oh, I probably played 
maybe 20 rounds of golf with Clint over over my career, 20, 25 rounds. Wow. The year, year they rained the Crosby out, which, gosh, what year was that? Not maybe ninety six, maybe. Mm-hmm. We were we, Lemon and I were really close to making the cut. We never made the cut as a as a team. Even the year I won as an individual, we didn't make the cut as a team, which tells you that Lemon could struggle on a golf course, especially on stroke holes. But Clint Eastwood, it, it was raining so hard they kept delaying play, and it looked like they were going to have to cancel the tournament. And we were in a meeting because I was on the policy board. At Time. And we had meetings with tour officials and uh, uh, PJ tour officials and the tournament uh, liaison and Clint who was the mayor of Carmel at the time. And <laughs> we came in and Clint was so mad. He goes, hey, just chip the ball over those puddles on the green. Come on. What are you guys, a bunch of children? And he did not want the tournament to be canceled. But we ended up canceling the tournament. And there was no more ticked-off guy on Monterey Peninsula than Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you don't want a ticked-off Clint Eastwood anywhere. Oh, now, no. did you did you ever actually play music with him as well when he went to the piano and all the rest? No, I never played music. Never played music with Clint, but I played music wow. with uh, with Jack Lemon. In fact, Jack Lemon and his son Chris are both incredible pianists. Uh, and that's what Jack would do. Jack would, whenever I was in L.A. for the L.A. Open, we would go to his house, and you'd always find Jack uh, tickling the keys on his piano, and his son Brilliant. was a great player. And I became really good friends with Bruce Hornsby over the years, and we still we still maintain a really solid relationship. And I remember Bruce was doing a show in L.A., and after his show, we all went, and we went back to Jack's house. And here I am sitting on the couch listening to Jack Lemon, his son Chris Lemon, who's an actor, and Bruce Hornsby trading songs and playing together and singing tunes. That, to me, was absolute nirvana. Oh, it's so brilliant. Uh, three more names for you with players that I've written down here, and you probably know who they all are. Uh, first of all, Jack Nicholas. Well, like I said, I think people, when Jack, when Jack was playing, everybody looked at him as the antique price to Arnold Palmer because Arnold was the king and along came Jack and Jack was kind of taking the throne away from Arnold. And I think people got the wrong idea. I I know Jack and Arnold were great competitors uh, because they were battling out, battling for these majors against each other, but they were great friends. But, and I, I just have to recount one story. I did an event in Portland for years called the Fred Meyer Challenge. Yeah. And we always did a clinic before the first round. And I was played with Arnold Palmer, and I'd always invite either Jackie or Gary Nicholas. And I would say, you can bring whatever partner you want. And amazingly, <laughs> they, always brought their, they always brought their dad, Jack. So we were, on, we were doing the clinic, and I thought, i got to get Jack and Arnold up together. So I got them up together, and they, they immediately went into a Abbott and Costello act on the green where we did the clinic. We did the clinic on the 18th green to utilize the sky suite surrounding the 18th green. And we just hit back down the fairway, the opposite direction. And Arnold and Jack started hitting shots and they started giving each other the needle and they started giggling like school kids. And it was an amazing five or 10 minutes that I will (laughs) never forget. We did get that on tape. And I think I think if you ask Jack to this day about that moment with Arnold at the, at the Fred Meyer Challenge, he will remember that vividly. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, Tiger Woods. Well, Tiger Woods I knew as a kid when he was first coming up. I met him at the L.A. Open when he was 16. Well, I, remember, I remember getting paired with uh, Tiger and Ernie Els the first two rounds of 1995 open championship at St. Andrews and I'm walking down the first fairway with fluff caddying for me. This is before he went to work for tiger and I'm paired with an amateur tiger woods. Who's I think 18 or 19 and a young Ernie Ells who's 23. And I looked at fluff and I said, how the heck did we get in this pairing of the future of the game of golf and fluff? And I just 
we just laughed at each other. I was, Gosh. I think I was 43 or 44 at the time, but uh, I remember Tiger came up on the range afterwards. He was having trouble with his ball flight and his trajectory, and he came up afterwards and after we played the first two rounds, and he said, hey, and we all three made the cut. Ernie was leading, I think, after two days. And he came up and he said, hey, is there anything that you think I need to work on? And, wow, I, I'd never had that, never had any other player ask a question like that. And I told him what I thought. I told him how impressed I was with him as a kid and him as a person and him as a, as a ball striker. And and then next thing I know, Ernie else, I see him in the locker room, and Ernie said, hey, Tiger came up to me and asked me if I had any suggestions for his game. And Ernie was impressed as well. And I think it just goes to show you how honest and realistic Tiger is about his game. He knows that when he needs to improve on something, he sets his mind to it. And that's, that's what's always impressed me about Tiger is he has always overcome the obstacles. And, again, we said earlier, he's had some major obstacles that he's had to overcome, and he's done a great job of it. The, the last name I want to ask you about, uh, Peter, you've already spoken about often, so if I may be a little bit biased in terms of direction, how was it, why was it, that you had such a close relationship with Arnold Palmer? I, I don't know, Matt. We we I signed with McCormick early on, and I actually met Arnold with Mark McCormick. The first time I met Arnold was... I was playing a practice round for my first tour event, which was the Crosby Clambake. I was out at Monterey Peninsula Country Club playing a late practice round on Monday after I Monday qualified. And I cut over from like 12 to 16, and I hit four or five tee shots. And I looked around, and I noticed a group was coming up behind me. I didn't notice them when I, when I jumped to the tee. And I looked, and there were two players coming up behind me with about 600 people, it was Arnold Palmer and Mark McCormick. And I had just signed with McCormick. And Arnold walked up, hitching his pants. And in a situation like that, Arnold was my dad's hero. And as a result, uh, uh, my hero. And he could have big-timed me. He could have come up and brushed me off and said, out of the way, kid. He walked up and stuck out that big mitt of his. <laughs> and he shook my hand and he said, hey, I'm Arnold Palmer. This is Mark McCormick, my manager. Can we join you? And it, it was clear that I'd cut in front of them. But Arnold's a golfer. He knows that happens. The sun is setting in the Pacific. We, we've got three holes to play before dark. And those last three holes are, are still burned in my memory. Arnold treated me like a peer. Here he is, Arnold Palmer. Here I am, nobody. But he treated me like I was an equal. I never forgot that. And I think uh, maybe Arnold saw that I was somebody to have a good time with and I could be relaxed in his, uh, in his presence with him because Arnold loved the needle. I would give him the needle. He, he, he didn't really like reverence. He didn't really like people that could call him Mr. Palmer. He'd love it if you walked up and told him his shoes were dirty or his shoes were old or, or he, had a, he had a coffee stain on his golf shirt and he needs to change his shirt. He 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 loved that, and maybe maybe my being a smart aleck worked in my favor. I don't know. <laughs> I am going to ask you about your sponsors in just a second, but I wanted to ask you this one question first. Uh, I believe that things happen for a reason, and I believe that messages reach people when they need to. And I know that there are people out there that are harboring some hope in their hearts, some dream that they hope to accomplish in their lives. What would Peter Jacobson's advice be for someone who's hoping to accomplish something that they've always harbored a wish for? The one thing that I I learned early on in my golf career, if I could put it in golf terms, is that no matter what's happened in your past, you might have bogeyed the last hole today to, 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 to lose the tournament, or you might have bogeyed a hole to miss the cut. Hanging on to what's happened in your past is not going to help you tomorrow morning. And I learned early on that when I wake up tomorrow morning, I could be anything I want to be. I could be the best player in the game if I wanted to be, if I truly believed it. I also could be the worst player in the game if I truly believed it. And as that old adage is, uh, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. And I think 
that's has always been my philosophy is, and believe me, I one year at the Western Open, I came to the last hole with a one-shot lead. I hit it over the green and made double bogey and lost by one. And I went out the next next week and almost won that tournament because you've got to put those things behind you. And, and again, we all have our goals and dreams and our desires and our directions. You just have to remember you are where you are today for a reason. And you just got to continue to look forward and anticipate good things coming down the road. Because I truly believe if you anticipate the good things, they will happen. Who is Peter Jacobson associated with now? Well, I've been a, I've been a gosh, almost a 40-year brand ambassador for Lexus. And they have been an amazing company. They're the official automobile for the United States Golf Association. Uh, and it's it's been an amazing relationship. I've been with Cleveland Strixon Zexio now for about 16 years, mm. um, and I, I just love working with that company. They have the same type of an of an attitude that that I work with and that that I try to bring to the game. And I've I've been involved with uh, a great a great company you may know called Golden Tea. I've been I've been mm-hmm. the spokesman of that game for so many years. Uh, and it's been it's been really fun, and also work with Jim Nugent at, at Global Golf Post. Uh, so those are, those are the companies that that really really mean the most to me. And Peter, I can tell you when when you you know talking about the impact that you made and what you represent and who you are, all of that has been something that's been important to all of us because as I said from the start of this interview even people who haven't met you before and I suspect it's very much in keeping with some of the people that you discussed tonight some friends of yours they feel like they know you and that's because of how open you are how much fun you are they feel like they are your friend and I can tell you it's an honor to have you as a friend and thank you for the time that you spent well, with us. Matt, thanks. I love working with you. I wish we worked a little bit more together on Golf Channel and NBC, but but I'll take whatever time we can get. Thank you, my friend. Good luck up there with the kids and everything else. All right. Thanks, Matt. All the best to you and yours.